Hello, and welcome to the Spring Podcast, where socialist ideas take action. I am your host, Laura Conrad. The Spring Podcast is recorded from Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people, and is produced by the Spring Socialist Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. Today, we are privileged to have with us Rajan Hoylet. Rajan is a member of the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, Abolition Coalition, and the Spring Socialist Network. He comes from Toronto and currently works with the Workers' Action Centre. Welcome, Rajan. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. What is abolition and why is it important for socialists to be abolitionists? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, so abolition is a, a political vision uh, with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, surveillance, uh, and a part of that also creating lasting alternatives to punishment, imprisonment. Um, abolition is not just about ending uh, like the prison industrial complex, um, but it it calls on us to change everything within society to to change the world that we live in that makes it possible for us to deem some people as disposable and some people as as uh, subjecting some people to uh, the the immense harms that is incarceration. Um, it uh, is calling on us to to address a system that we know isn't working that we know um, was created to um, police and uh, harm certain members of our community be that uh, black people indigenous people um, people with disabilities people um, that are uh, trans who use drugs who like the the all of the folks that, that we know are, are typically um, harmed by by the these institutions of, of racism and white supremacy and capitalism, uh, and so so abolition is a, a political vision and a vehicle that we can use to uh, address uh, that larger system. And the question about why it's important for socialists is is a really good one. Um, we're in our abolitionist book club. We are just actually reading Ronaldo Walcott's on property, and in the book he makes the claim, or in the pamphlet he makes the claim. Um, that for many of us, abolition has actually taken the place of small C communism. Uh, that is like communism without the party. Um, and and where I th- think that comes from is that because abolition abolition brings forth such a bold demand that necessitates this, uh, necessitates this large transformation of the state um, in a way that that uh, needs to address capitalism that uh, drives us to address like the the most egregious harms of of the system that puts profit over people um i think for for socialists um there there's a lot of reasons to to align with this movement and to organize within this movement um a lot of the most visible leaders within the abolitionist movement have been clearly aligned with socialism and communism we're thinking about folks like uh angela davis um uh, but also the the sort of opposite is true as well. Um, within this movement, um, there is a powerful and ready community of people that can uh, that are sort of ripe for the for for the uh, I don't want to say like ripe for the picking, but like you know they're they're there and, and they're people that can um, 
embrace the demands uh, that come with socialism, embrace the things that we're talking about and, and the kind of power that we're trying to build in these other movements. Um, and so I think that there's a very natural allyship here. Um, a lot of the people already identify in both ways, um, but um, because abolition is dealing with these sort of direct harms that we feel in our body, a lot of people identify with abolition without ever really trying to think about um, what their vision is for transforming um, the state on an economic level or transforming the state um, like from a, a place of building workers' power. So there, there's a lot of opportunities here, I think, to, to sort of build this allyship. And the, I think the last thing I'll say on this um, is that we can't work to, to transform capitalism uh, in any real way without addressing um, the racial violence that is the prison industrial complex or the carceral system. Can you tell us about the Toronto Prisoners Rights Project and maybe a little bit of how you got involved and why? Um, so the Toronto Prisoners Rights Project, it, it's a community group. Um, I, I think with the emphasis being really on community, um, it's a, a group of people who uh, some folks have been incarcerated, some folks like myself have loved ones who are incarcerated. Uh, folks like work with uh, prisoners or supporting prisoners in, in different avenues and in respects. Uh, and some people have just been moved into action after they found out um, how egregious and how harmful the carceral sy system is here um, and, and everywhere. Um, we're an abolitionist organization that is uh, focused on um, organizing with prisoners organizing for prisoner justice, organizing for prisoners' rights. Um, and it really comes from this, this recognition that the abolitionist movement, um, that is the movement that comes from the movement to abolish slavery, was successful only because of the leadership and the sacrifices made by enslaved people. Um, and so it, it stands to uh, reason that uh, the abolitionist movement of today that is moving to abolish police and prisons in all its forms also needs to um, be led by incarcerated people um, that can tell us about the most egregious harms uh, that the system um, is putting forward that are willing to take the sacrifices that are needed to be able to address those harms and to, to take action. As an organization, uh, we work through sort of mutual aid. So we know that a lot of the people that we're supporting, you know, they're, they're living in the belly of the beast. Um, they're in some of the most dramatic moments of their life and just need support and community support and love and care and attention uh, to be able to do all of the other work that we need to do to dismantle the system and build anew. Um, we engage in direct action and in part because a lot of people were coming from organizations that do work with prisoners but don't do any work to call out the prison system because of their relationship to the government because of where they're receiving funding. So we're an organization with teeth. Um, we do direct action. Um, and we are also uh, working to educate people in our communities about what's happening in prisons because there's this um, this veil of secrecy over what happens inside. And how were you first introduced to the Toronto's Prisoners' Rights Project? Um, I first got introduced. I was I was really involved uh, living here in Toronto uh, in groups like Black Lives Matter Toronto. Um, in uh, starting to organize around state violence and starting to organize around uh, police and actually police violence because police are just violent. Um, and uh, 
while doing that and, and building power and seeing how how many things are possible when we come together. Um, I was also reflecting on, on my own personal story and sort of where we are. My brother after me uh, was incarcerated on a, on a two-year sentence um, and, and just going through the system with him and, and uh, knowing how devastating it is. I, I was looking for a place like this that, that you could do organizing, that you could do work, um, and really no other places existed. And um, at the time, some folks were starting to come together around um, what was the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project or what would become the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. And they were talking about phone calls um, and how expensive phone calls are for to, to reach your loved ones inside. Uh, and at that time, I was paying like three, $500 a month. I was hearing about people that were spending like upwards of $1,000 to be able to talk to their loved ones out of province. Um, and so we started to, I started to get involved in helping collecting petitions um, help attending rallies and actions, helping to plan rallies and actions uh, that were calling for a free phone system uh, and addressing the, the Bell Canada phone contract. So that was sort of my first foray. Um, and because it's a community, there's been so many opportunities to take leadership and to participate in building and to continue to push forward. I think for many people, prisons seem like an essential feature for safety. Where do you think this idea has come from? Um, I think nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, but uh, the, the truth is, too, that, that police and, and prisons uh, and, and the government spends billions of dollars every single year to be able to tell this lie, um, to be able to continue to um, sell this narrative or to sell this story that there are some of us that are just too dangerous to exist in communities with anybody else. Um, and that the police uh, are here to protect us, you know, that they're that they're secretly Batman and, and that they're going to just fly into our community and, and pull off these uh, enormous feats and hold people to account and make sure that people don't get a, get away with harm and, and make it so make it so um, unappealing to, to commit crimes that 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 crimes just won't happen or, or people will be too afraid to 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 do these kind of things. Um, and I mean, none of that's true. Um, we have been seeing incarceration rates continue to go up as crime rates go down. And so there's no real correlation there. Um, we know that police don't actually do anything to prevent um, harms from happening. They show up after the fact, sometimes actually, or, or most often uh, exacerbate the problem um, when we're thinking of <laughs> domestic violence. Um, and, and, you know, there's countless stories of people who have been underserved or completely not served, uh, by the police system or, uh, re-traumatized, um, by, by a system that is just violent within itself. Um, and I think that because people don't get to see what happens inside prisons and that these are institutions that are, are just violent there. I think it's Miriam Cobbler says that like these are, are rape factories, you know, like that these are, are places that um, we put people to to be sexually assaulted, to be violently assaulted and, and harmed. Um, and, you know, sort of the out of sight, out of mind thing for, for so many people is about taking the the people that society has told us is, is completely unmanageable away. Um, and so that we don't have to think about them. We don't have to see them. We don't have to deal with them. Um, but yeah, no, nothing could be further from the truth. And, and we should think about what actually does keep us safe. We know that when people have 
money for housing or when people have housing, when people have food, when people have access to medical care, when people have access to programming and support, when people have mental health supports, that those are the things that actually keep us safe. And what prisons and police do is is take billions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars in, in um, hours and hours and hours of, of work and um, capacity away from being able to provide those essential supports um, and directing it into something that we know isn't working, that has never worked. Can you talk a little bit about your vision? So if society were to have a drastic change in mentality of um, what community safety really is and how that's achieved, can you just talk about your vision of, you've just explained how the system is now, what what do you see possible for the future? I think uh, this is a question that we get. I, I'm not saying that this is how you're you're asking the question, but oftentimes when we bring up the demands of abolition, um, you know, folks who are are uh, living within this community right now um, ask us, okay, well then what comes next? Like, what else do we do um, beyond imprisoning people? Uh, and I I think I both understand where that's coming from, uh, and I like you know like we live in a community that has um, had such a damaging effect on our imagination that it, it is hard to think about what else could come out of this situation. Um, and I would say a couple of things. One, uh, I don't think any one of us um, has within our imagination or, or within our vision the thing that comes after prisons. Um, but what I do know is that if we, what well, what we do know right now is that the, this system doesn't work. That the that the act of putting mostly Black and Indigenous people, mostly people with disabilities, mostly people without money, and working class people uh, away in cages does more harm than good. We can point in our personal lives. We can point um, on a systemic level. There's been countless studies done that that have talked about you know like the there's. There's no reform coming, but there's not the promises of prisons um, aren't being delivered. People aren't um, being held accountable in these institutions and coming out and just being better people. You know, I don't know a single person that hasn't come out with like a severe, um, severe negative outcomes to their mental health and and to their general wellness. Um, And so I think like the what comes next question is like we need to be bold enough to envision something different, to try a million things together um, that I'm, prison and police didn't go through the same sort of litmus test of of like prove that this thing works and before it was sort of implemented in society. It definitely hasn't always been this way. Um, and so I think in, in my sort of vision of, of what I need and, and what our, the communities and the people that I work with and the people um, that, that I live with need, you know, like that people need housing, you know, people need, uh, good working conditions. People need access to food. Um, and, and these are things that we can definitely start to provide once we move away from prioritizing a system that punishes people and criminalizes people. So maybe you can talk a little about what purpose prisons serve in Canada and maybe talk a little bit about um, its role, prison's role in upholding racial capitalism in Canada. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay, so, I mean, we know that the prisons don't do the things that they promise us. And I think if we take a step back and look at who is inside prisons, it becomes very clear um, what it is that, that they're attempting to do. Um, and so um, black folks um, here in this country have seen um, incarceration go up within our communities by 70%. Um, black people represent about 3.5% of the general population, but 7.2% uh, of Canada's prison population. Indigenous people um, represent 4.9% uh, of the general population, but a staggering 30% of Canada's prison population. And so if we just look at who is inside these institutions en masse, uh, I think it starts to paint a really clear picture that these are institutions that are here to uphold white supremacy. Um, and I, I see um, prisons and, and the prison industrial complex is one arm of white supremacy and imperialism. Um, I see capitalism as another arm um, and, and both of these things working together to, uh, you know, up, uphold this idea and this image of what Canada is trying to be ever since the moment of colonization, um, ever since the sort of arrival of Europeans. Um, and across the world, at, like everywhere um, that this project of prisons has been taken up has been almost in entirely in the service of white supremacy to think about how to continue to destabilize uh, black and indigenous peoples around the world. Um, and I think prisons, what they actually do, and, you know, when we sort of shed that myth that they keep our community safe, um, they create an abandoned class, uh, a class of people um, that, you know, like there's sometimes I think when when folks are thinking about this, we pull from what we know about um, prisons in the United States and, and think about all of this labor that gets extracted um, for capital and, you know, to make to make clothes or to make license plates or, or sort of whatever the images are that, that, that people have. And in Canada, it's a very different picture. Um, but I think nonetheless, it still creates this abandoned class of people that, um, you know, are, are, are forced into these positions where you sit and do nothing. Um, and you are, you know, you're sort of subjected to uh, a kind of social death, a kind of economic death, a kind of familial death, um, a spiritual death that, um, and sort of puts you away so that the state doesn't have to have to deal with you or care for you in any way, shape or form. Um, and this is a class even sort of underneath the working class, you know, and, and I think it also kind of serves as as a, a constant reminder, maybe the the sort of whip at the heels of, of working class people that um, if you don't participate uh, in capitalism, if, if you seek a if you seek to live with outside the norms, uh, uh, then then this could be what you this is where you will end up. This is sort of how you will be. I think for me growing up as a kid, you know, that. Um, it was always like you either do really well in school or like you end up like living a life of crime and and you end up in prison and, and your life is this, that or the other. And so I think that there's those sort of immediate functions of the institution uh, and there's so many different ways. Um, I think like prisons too, like they're, they're not just prisons, like that there's a whole apparatus of, of a number of things that exist around prisons, like that our school systems are implicated in and upholding the prison industrial complex and um, 
that just like the the whole notion of property, like we know the police specifically exist in our communities to protect property, whether that be private or public property. And we're seeing that with like the removal of, of people from encampments um, in public parks. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's, uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of things that the prisons actually do within our community. Um, and when we start to look, look at who is actually inside, um, you know, the people that commit wage theft um, aren't ending up in prison. Um, there, there are people that are that are really harming our communities in, in serious and significant ways, and uh, in no way do they ever touch the prison system. So there's multiple reports indicating that prison populations in Canada have been rising through the pandemic. Can you speak to that um, and maybe talk about what you see as the biggest failure of the Canadian prison system? through the pandemic? Yeah. During the first wave um, in 2020, a lot of us were were terrified about what would happen to our loved ones inside. We, you know, we're hearing about um, this sort of deadly virus that is, um, you know, as, as we've come to know, that is super transmissible. And, and we know that prisons are just kind of a Petri dish for you know, if, if somebody gets a flu in prison, they just sort of pass through the institution really quickly. Um, and so a lot of us were, uh, you know, worried about um, what was going to happen. And so we started off calling on the government to immediately start releasing people from prisons. We know like in provincial institutions, for example, 70% of those institutions are people that are just awaiting trial. Not people that have been found guilty of anything. They're people who maybe don't have money for a lawyer, that they're just sitting on a public defender. They haven't even been able to contact their lawyer. And, and they're just sitting awaiting trial, sometimes for years. Um, and so our sort of initial, like right off the bat call was to say, you, like there really is no reason for people to be double and triple bunked um, in cells um, and that we need to see an immediate reduction of the prison population. And during the first wave of the pandemic, um, because of an immense amount of pressure, because of public health officials, um, speaking up because uh, of prisoners telling telling their stories because the government was like completely ill-equipped and unprepared to be able to keep people safe inside and, and that's an impossible task. Um, we saw a 30% reduction in the uh, prison population in provincial institutions, particularly not in federal institutions. And I think for, for what a lot of us um, had like some, some like webinars around that time to like keep people updated on, on what was going inside and, and to help to tell the story as the news was covering everything but prisons. Um, and I remember one of those discussions, somebody sort of just started off right off the bat and to say, you know, like for years we've been talking about abolition, we've been talking about releasing people. And, and for years, the government, the state and um, the, the powers that be have been telling us if, if we release people from jails, it's going to be pandemonium that all hell is going to break loose. We're going to release all these drug dealers and and criminals and sex offenders out onto the streets and and people are just you know going to be unsafe in in that world and we reduced the prison population by 30 percent and that didn't happen and so i think for a lot of us it also like painted a picture that um our demands around abolition around decarceration actually aren't these pie in the sky demands that they are are very real uh, tangible things to be calling for to be asking for especially in this moment 
um, after the first wave, we saw the government completely abandon that strategy. And I, I don't have anything to point towards uh, sort of why they've done this here in Ontario. Like Sylvia Jones, who's the Solicitor General, is just nowhere to be found. Like everyone else is doing press conferences every day, every week, talking about education, talking about um, workplaces, talking about this, that, and the other. And Sylvia Jones, just nothing. There's just been no, um, there's been no report about um, what the government is doing or, or, or where they're at or how they're taking this crisis seriously. Uh, and I think in part, uh, the reason that we've seen the, the prison population go up is because the the message that it sends um, to our communities when we start to see those populations go down and all hell doesn't break loose, it tells us that, that our demands are not unrealistic and that we should be calling for abolition. Um, what is the, the sort of biggest fail, failure um, during COVID? Um, I mean, so the, we can like talk about the numbers for a second, like something like 16,000, more than 16,000, 16,111 um, people, I think is the, the last number that, that we have in terms of tracking across the country. Um, incarcerated people have contracted COVID. We know that 11 people have died across the country. Um, here in Ontario, 4,004 uh, prisoners have contracted COVID, and that's just what they've told us. We know that there hasn't been adequate testing. Um, we also just know, like, the, the data and the information that has come out has been incredibly suspect. Um, you know, there'll be numbers one day and then no numbers the next day, and then in two more days, like, it, it's jumped again. And so there's there's not really reliable information, but that's just what the government has reported. Um, and so we know that that is... That is uh, an immense problem, an immense issue. But even beyond that, like talking to folks every day on our on our jail hotlines and, and getting mail from prisoners, um, the story that they're telling is is just every day is a lockdown. And when you're under lockdown, that means you can't leave your cell. Folks are on lockdown for 23 hours a day, 23 and a half hours a day. We heard um, folks that um, have been on lockdown sometimes for 21 days at a time. And so I mean, those are all times that you can't get out to call your loved one, that you're picking between, am I going to shower today or call my loved one and tell them that I'm not dead? Um, you know, like that, it, that that's sort of uh, what people have been subjected to. Um, the actual protocols of what happens when people contract COVID or test positive, they're in contact with somebody that tests positive, they're are put in what the government calls medical isolation, but really is just segregation, which has been outlawed. Um, and, and so people are also terrified of going into segregation. Um, prisoners have been denied masks, um, at a lot of the institutions we've had to beg and plead and, uh, push this government and like sound the alarm to say that prisoners aren't being given masks, that they're needing to make cloth masks and then having those taken away from them for covering their face. Um, and even through all of those things, like, um, visitations have been canceled, um, programming has, has completely stopped. People haven't been able, some people haven't been able to get paroled or get released because they can't get the programming that will help them get paroled or released. Uh, and so folks are staying inside and, and having nothing happen. There's no improvements in their life or, uh, in their situation. Um, yeah, we're, you know, like we're talking to some folks from the Toronto East Detention Center they're in, they're pointing out that you can't prove that there's any rehabilitation happening um, that there, there's not even a programming officer employed at the Toronto East Detention Center. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, like, 
prisons were a disaster before COVID um, and were in and of itself like a, a public health crisis. Um, and COVID, I think, like it did for a lot of things on the outside, just um, sort of highlighted what has been going on and, and why these institutions don't work and don't serve our communities. Okay, what do abolitionists see as the way forward in the short term and the long term? Hmm, okay, I think, um, not speaking for all abolitionists, but uh, I think sort of in the immediate short term, um, you know, like, uh, and even speaking just like from, from where I live here in Toronto, in Ontario, from what I know that's happening across the country, um, the sort of the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, um, the uprisings that took place, the sort of conditions that I just described inside have led a lot of people inside, especially in provincial institutions, which people serve two years less a day, um, have become politicized and, and started to see their power. And, and, you know, we've seen countless hunger strikes um, in provincial institutions here in Ontario. We've seen a sort of a renewed focus within federal institutions, within inmate communities of engaging in this sort of activism. Um, and so I think right now for, for abolitionists, um, particularly like for, for abolitionists that are on the outside, this is a really important time for us to be committed to this project of abolition, to be committed to this project of prisoner justice, um, and to, to be supporting because people are trying to organize within the belly of the beast and they're taking enormous risks to, to do this kind of organizing. Um, but they can't do that without anybody seeing or witnessing or paying attention. And so we need to continue to tell these stories. We need to continue to show up, um, and to, pay attention when these stories are, are being told about what's happening in our institutions. Um, I think also like one thing that, that the pandemic brought was sort of a, a renewed focus on mutual aid and in, in, in Toronto Prisoners Rights Project, we're trying to actively think through um, what, what does mutual aid look like and how do we do this from a standpoint of building solidarity and not uh, working through some sort of charitable model. That leads me to my next question, which is, for someone listening right now or anyone who would like to get involved in the abolitionist movement, maybe even with the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, what, what, would, you, um, what would you say to them? I would say get involved. Um, if you live in, in Toronto, uh, you can reach out to the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. Um, there are literally a million things that, that you can do if you have an idea there's a bunch of projects to to be able to contribute to um but i if if where you live there is nothing happening um i would say start something um that is that is you know putting you in direct communication with folks that are incarcerated whether that's like running a jail hotline for a couple hours a week where you can hear complaints and help to amplify those demands for folks um, or helping to connect people to resources as they're being released. Um, the, that's the kind of participation that we really need uh, to see from folks. Um, and then, yeah, participating uh, in groups like the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. I think also a lot of us um, are in, you know, a state of crisis. Um, the thing that brings a lot of people to this work is 
um, having some skin in the game and, and having, you know, either themselves or a loved one that's been incarcerated. And so that means that people's lives are in flux. And so if you're interested and you have energy uh, to come and to be ready to, to take on some work and to be ready to show leadership and to be ready to um, help and support uh, organizing. And I think don't, don't stop asking questions about what's happening inside um, because that's really how we've gotten to this point um, of the immense harms that are being um, carried out every single day. Your work with the Toronto Prisoners Project um, sounds quite heavy and challenging and that uh, some of the things that you hear and see are heartbreaking. Um, could you talk about how you sustain yourself in this work? How do you look after yourself? What are your self-care practices so that you can keep doing this work long-term? Um, <laughs> that's a funny question. Um, and a necessary question. Uh, I think at different times I've personally been very terrible at, at thinking about how to, to sustain myself. And, and I think I, like every single day there's another fire um, in, in this kind of organizing space. Um, but I would say that there's, uh, just an incredible community, like, um, uh, the uh, people that are incarcerated just like have this immense capacity to like be, to be going through it, but also just be providing the most amount of care. And so like the people that remind me to take care of myself often are the folks that I'm talking to on the phone um, that are inside that are having these wild things happen to them um, and you know they've just developed such a deep sense of empathy and love and care um, and so I think it's just being involved in this community that despite my worst impulses to um, not care for myself um, there have been uh, a lot of people who have have stepped in and into uh, shoulder, shoulder the, the load and, and to, um, help and hold all of us up. And so I think like there hasn't, I, I don't know if there's like a ton of self-care to talk about, but I think the community care that I receive in this space and that I know that other folks receive in this space, um, has just, has been incredible. Uh, at times it's been really difficult. Um, but there's, there's this constant sort of reflection and improvement, um, that happens that I think is really important. And yeah, I, I don't think, that I would be able to do this work had it not been for the community that I'm a part of. Thank you for sharing that. If anyone listening wanted to get in touch with you, did you want to share your social media or uh, email address with our listeners? Yeah. Um, getting in touch with me is probably not as fruitful as you might think, but um, I would say uh, get in touch with the Toronto Prisoners Rights Project. Uh, at Toronto Prisoners Rights Project on Instagram and Twitter, Toronto Prisoners Rights Project on Facebook, and our email is torontoprisonersrights at gmail.com. And check out our website, torontoprisonersrightsproject.org. That's wonderful. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Um, we really value your time. We know that you are busy and holding up a community here, and uh, we're grateful for your for your time today. So thank, thank you. you so much, Laura. Thank you for listening to the spring podcast. 
To learn more about Spring, visit our website at springmag.ca. We welcome your feedback. If you have questions or ideas for future podcast episodes, you can send us an email at info at springmag.ca. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast.